Well, uh, last week we opened up uh, by acknowledging that each of us, whether we've been walking with Jesus for decades, uh, whether we've recently come to faith, or whether we wouldn't call ourselves a Christian at all, that each one of us has questions, that each one of us has doubts, that there's seasons, there's moments in each one of our lives where we struggle to believe or accept or act on or remember what's true about God, uh, who he is, what he's done for us. Kyle uh, quoted the story from the New Testament last week that said, I believe, help my unbelief. Kind of this contradiction in terms, this paradox. I believe, God, I believe you can do it, but I'm also struggling to believe. Can you help me where I don't believe, but I do believe, but help me where I don't believe. And that's the heart behind this series. That's the heart behind the next six Sundays here at Covenant. To get real about the pieces of Christianity that are hard to believe that are hard to explain, to be honest and transparent about the problems that people throughout history and certainly today have with God. So first things first, let me echo what Kyle said last week. In this place, it's okay to have doubts. In this family, we welcome curiosity and investigation, even skepticism. That in this community, you are allowed to have questions. You're allowed to have big questions because we believe strongly that there are big answers. And we're committed to walking alongside you and celebrating alongside you as those questions become answers and those answers open doors into new and incredible places. I believe that questions can create movement. I believe that if you're a Christian, you should be asking big questions. And if you're an atheist or an agnostic, you should be asking big questions. There's a story in the book of Matthew where Jesus is with his followers, and they ask him this question uh, that they ask him throughout the New Testament over and over, and each time he has a different, quirky, unexpected answer, and, and this time is no different. The question is, who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And this time, Jesus, uh, he sees some kids playing nearby, and he calls one of them over to the group, and he points to them, and he says, if you can humble yourself like this child, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, before I had kids of my own, when I looked at that, whoever can humble themselves like a child, what I kind of uh, took from that is this quiet, silent, studious, uh, absorbing, right? We hear the giggling from people who have spent time with children. We know that that's not the case. We know that to be humble like a child includes this tenacious asking of questions. What? Where? How? Why? 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 Just last weekend, I was in the attic of our house, uh, fixing a leak that I've been fixing for a while, and am going to continue to fix in the next coming weeks. And uh, I'm up in the attic, and I hear my daughter, Lily, calling from somewhere in our house, Dad, where are you? And uh, my very helpful response is, I'm up here. Uh, To which she responds, where are you? And my even less helpful response is, I'm in the attic. Why is this not a helpful response? See, we don't have one of those attics that's easy to get to, middle of the hallway with the staircase that comes down for you. This is like the opening is tucked inside of the closet in our master bedroom. You need a ladder. This is a room in our house that Lily doesn't know exists. She's never heard the word before. So when I say I'm in the attic, that means nothing. So she's following my voice. She has no clue where I am, and this this kind of disjointed conversation continues. Where are you? 
She says, where is the attic? And I I say, it's on top of the house. (laughs) So she says, oh, no, you're on the roof? What if you fall off? No, I'm in the attic. What's the attic, right? And it's kind of like in between. I don't know (laughs) know how to say it. So so finally, I I work my way over to the opening of the attic. She finds her way to the closet, and we finally make eye contact. And again, if you spend any time with kids, you probably know what she says next. Why is it called an attic? Why? What? What's it there for? Why can I come up? Like, questions, questions, questions. What? Where? Why? To take on the humility of a child is to tenaciously and humbly and curiously ask these big questions. And the kind of questions we're asking in this series are bigger questions. And they're questions that people have been asking forever. Where did we come from? What should we be doing? Why? Do we exist? And as the series progresses, we're going to zoom in on some of the most specific, common hang-ups that people have surrounding the Christian faith. We're going to talk about the problem of evil. If God is good, then why do these terrible things keep happening? We're going to look at the problem of science. Doesn't what we see and measure and observe in the world, isn't that inconsistent with the Bible? Aren't they incompatible? We're going to look at the problem of hypocrisy, the notion that the words, the attitudes, the actions of believers can undermine the credibility of what we say we believe. These are big questions, big conversations, so come back in the following weeks as we talk about these. But this morning, we're zooming one layer out. We're stepping back, and we're asking kind of the question around all of the questions, and that is the problem of God's existence itself. So Kyle kind of lobbed me a softball this week. You know, we're going to do God's existence in 30 minutes. <laughs> the oldest question, the biggest question. No, I'm kidding. I love this topic. It's incredibly important. It's fundamental. It's, it's foundational. It's fundamental because it's the first step in a long journey of faith. It's the door that leads into an enormous, rich world with more questions, more answers to explore. Here's what I mean. Once you believe that there is something outside of what we can see, the journey begins. So I can believe that God exists, and then I can believe, oh, not only does he exist, but he created me. Not only did he create me, but he's personal. Not only is he personal, but he can be known. And not only can he be known, but he wants to know me. And not only does he know me, but he loves me, even though he knows everything about me. Not only does he love me, but he saved me. And, and, and it goes, and it goes, and it goes, and it's this journey of faith. What, what is that first step in the journey of faith? Is saying, is there more than just what I can see with my eyes and touch with my hands? Is there anything else? Before we can talk about what God is like and how he relates to people and how he feels about pain and sin and what science does or does not say about him, we have to establish whether or not believing in God is even a credible, satisfying worldview. So if you aren't a believer, this is worth investigating, sinking your teeth into. If you are a believer, this is vital for your mission as you seek to make Jesus known in our culture. So I'm hoping that there will be something for everyone this morning. Fact is, if we went downtown or we went out on campus and we asked people why they don't believe in God, we'd hear a few things. One of the things we'd hear is that, yeah, faith in God, it's kind of like an emotional crutch. It feels good to know that there's something after life. It, it explains where our lost loved ones have gone. It gives us a little bit of hope. That it's kind of wishful thinking. We'd also hear people talking about how belief in God is kind of this out 
outdated, outmoded way of thinking about the world that civilization has honestly outgrown. But more than anything, we'd hear that there isn't any evidence. We'd hear people saying things like, I would believe in your God if you could show me. I need to see it, and then I'll believe it. If there was evidence, I would believe it. They're saying that, there's, that we're making a bold claim, and that claim needs to be backed up. And that's where we begin this morning. Is there any evidence, any evidence of God? Any evidence of anything else that exists outside of what we can see and hear and smell and touch? So I won't des- deny for a second that Christians are making a bold claim. But I would assert that we live in a world that when you really stop and examine it, can't be explained by anything other than a bold claim. We live in a world that's hard to explain. Our lives unfold on this strange and beautiful planet filled with complicated people and indescribable creatures filled with moments of immense joy and crushing sorrow, and they all end in inescapable death. Whew! We need a bold claim. And I would say that any attempt to quantify and measure and explain our existence is going to be a bold claim. Kind of levels the playing field a little bit. What I'm saying is that if we claim there's a God, we're claiming there's an all-powerful, invisible, mind-like being who created all things, knows all things, yes, that's a bold claim. It, It takes faith to believe that. But if we claim there is no God, that's a bold claim too. And this morning we are going to unpack why. It takes a leap of faith to believe in God. And it takes a different leap of faith to believe that God doesn't exist. And the question we all have to answer, the question your neighbor and your coworker and your friend and your family member has to answer is which one of these leaps is more plausible? Which one does the best job of accounting and describing the way things are? Which leap is worth taking? A worldview with God at the center and and a worldview without God at all both require faith and reason. In fact, any conceivable worldview we can imagine requires a combination of faith and reason, belief and logic, combining facts about what we can see with our eyes and leaps of faith about things that we can't. So is there any evidence that God exists outside of the Bible, outside of religious texts and holy documents? Are there proofs and clues that an all-powerful, eternal, infinite being actually exists? Now, you might be surprised to hear that modern science and philosophy say overwhelmingly yes. And renowned philosopher Alvin Plantinga points out that there are two dozen or so such arguments that are considered cogent arguments in the realms of philosophy metaphysics, arguments in favor of God's existence. Now, we're not going to talk about 22 arguments this morning, don't worry. For the sake of simplicity, we can boil those down and we can put them into two big categories. As Immanuel Kant called them, the starry host above and the moral law within. Or as uh, Plato described it, the argument from the order of the motion of stars and the argument from the existence of the soul. In other words, cosmology, the way the universe is, shows us something about God. And anthropology, the way that people are, show us something about God. And together, they make a compelling case that it may be more rational to believe in God than not to. The way the universe is, 
and the way people are. So let's start with the way the universe is. This is the cosmological argument for God in a nutshell. Start with the starry hosts above, looking to the universe that we live in for clues and signals, looking up and looking out. So at the, at the heart of the question of God's existence is really a question about does the existence of anything, the existence of stars and planets and galaxies, the existence of sharks and platypuses and guinea pigs, the existence of you and I. Where did this all come from? Where did we come from? The one thing we can all agree on is that the universe exists. For as long as there have been people, there have been two basic responses to this idea. And these responses relate to a little piece of science called contingency. We're not going to get really deep into it, but contingency says if something begins to exist, then something must have caused it to exist. Something outside of it that pre-existed it caused it to exist. So you're here this morning, but you didn't always exist, did you? No. Your existence is contingent on your parents, on your parents existing, on your parents meeting, on your parents falling in love, on your parents lighting some candles one evening, and so on and so forth. You get the picture. Everything that begins to exist is contingent on a cause. Your cause is your parents. Your parents have a cause. It was their parents, and so on and so forth. And you go back, and you go back, and you go back. Scientists and philosophers, both believers and atheists, all kind of agree on this. If something has a beginning, then it has something outside of it that started it. Let's take another example Uh, Let's take uh, this cup of coffee. Let's ask questions about it like a kindergartner. This will be fun. So here's a cup of coffee. It hasn't always existed. I made it. I didn't really make it. I assembled it. I took a cup and I put coffee in it and I put a lid on it. So where did it come from? Well, it's not long when you ask why and where and what and why and where and what and you keep asking that as we talk about a coffee, we move from the kitchen here in the church to a water treatment plant to weather patterns to clouds to oceans, and all we have is hot water. And so where did the coffee beans come from? Well, now we're talking about supply chain management and air travel and Bernoulli's principle and photosynthesis. And a dozen questions later, we're talking about a cup of coffee, and we keep asking question after question. Yeah, but where? Yeah, but how? And now we're asking, okay, but where did the sun come from? And then we're asking a couple questions later. Yeah, but when, where did the universe come from? What is the cause behind the cause behind the cause? What is the first cause? And there's always been two responses to this uh, question. And the one response is that the universe has always existed. The universe in cell, itself is, in fact, that first cause that pre-exists everything, causes everything else to exist. The other response is that the universe began at some point, that the universe has a birthday. There was a time before anything physical existed and that something or someone caused it to exist. Now, this has always been a a difficult topic to debate, kind of relegated to the realm of uh, argument and and kind of calculated uh, propositions and theories because no one was there. No one DVR'd it. Uh, But in 1929, we got the next best thing, uh, when Edwin Hubble made one of the, the most important discoveries of the last hundred years. He used his gigantic telescope to look up into space, and he saw that galaxies are moving away from each other from one single point in time and space. This is what's called the Big Bang Theory. And to, to kind of crystallize it into to one idea, what he's saying is the universe started at one point, and there was a time when it didn't exist. Now, this actually really pairs 
with our idea of how we came into existence when we look at in the beginning, God. That there was a moment before when only God existed and then he created all things. This is the idea of contingency. If we know that the universe started and we know that if anything starts, it must have something bigger and outside of it to do the starting, then it follows that there is some sort of extremely powerful, beyond our imagination, outside of our existence, something or other that caused the universe to exist. That's the cosmological argument for God's existence. Instead, simply, if we see a house, we know it has an architect. We see a painting, we know that there's an artist. We see a cup of coffee, we know that there's a barista. But if we say God doesn't exist, we're, we're being inconsistent because we're applying that logic to all of these little pieces of the universe, and then we're com- applying exact opposite logic to the entire universe. That leads us kind of to our second place where we can find clues about the existence of God, and that is the way that we are. That's the, the moral argument. So our first argument was the cosmological argument. The the fact that the universe exists and what it looks like points us to this idea that someone made it, someone started it. And this is a a different idea that starts in a completely different place. It's finding clues about the existence of God from the way that people are, what we find in our hearts when we look in. C.S. Lewis was a skeptical atheist for most of his life. Uh, He starts out his book, Mere Christianity, by explaining... uh, the thought process that went behind his conversion. Why did he go from being a skeptical atheist his whole life into believing in the existence of God? And it starts with this moral argument. This is what he says. Everyone has heard people quarreling. I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kind of things they say when they're quarreling. They say things like this. How would you like it if anyone did the same thing to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a piece of your orange. I gave you some of mine. People say things like this every day. Educated people, uneducated people, children, grown-ups. And this is still C.S. Lewis talking. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who's making them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior doesn't happen to please him. He's appealing to some kind of standard of behavior, which he expects the other man to know about. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties involved had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you want to call it about which they agreed. This is the important part. And they do. If they didn't, they might, of course, fight like animals, but they could not quarrel in the human sense of the word because quarreling means trying to show that the other man is wrong. There would be no sense in trying to do that unless you both agreed on some sort of idea of what right and wrong are. Just as if there would be no sense in saying that a footballer had committed a foul unless there was some agreement about the rules of football. So first of all, this doesn't look too groundbreaking, but what Lewis is doing here is a really important piece of foundation for an important clue pointing us to the existence of God. When we talked about the universe and where it came from, we, cl- we found clues that point to what I refer to as an architect or a designer. Here, when we discuss the inner workings of the human heart, our conception of what's right and wrong, what is noble, what is despicable, what is fair, what is unfair, we find rules that point us to a rule giver. So if we drop the notion of God for a minute, of a rule giver, we're left in this situation that C.S. Lewis described, soccer players without a rule book without a referee. All that matters is getting points. No one can tell me how to do it. 
why use one soccer ball when we could use 10? Yes, I built a moat in front of my goal. If I want to bring my motorcycle out onto the pitch to get a little extra speed, no one can tell me not to. Also, that last goal I made was worth 12 points, and I win, and I have a force field. It's kind of silly in our imaginary soccer game, but it's a much more serious thing in real life. If we adopt a worldview without God, the most common explanation for how we behave is simply that it helps us survive. And you've heard of this idea before. The the theory being the best way to behave is whatever gives you the best chance of winning the game of life. It doesn't matter how, no rule book, no referee, whatever works, works. The popular phrase that describes this explanation of our actions is the survival of the fittest. That our behavior is shaped by this instinctual desire to win. And this seems pretty logical on the surface. But what we'll find is that it isn't consistent with the way things actually are. It doesn't describe the real world. Because it fails to explain that us humans celebrate and honor generosity, selflessness, sacrifice. Tim Keller explains it like this. For evolutionary purposes, hostility to all people outside of one's group should be widely considered moral and right behavior. Yet today we believe that sacrificing time, money, emotion, and even life, especially for someone not of our kind or tribe, is right. I read a story recently uh, in the news of a, of a homeless man who had nothing. He, he encountered a woman who was stranded in her car. She had run out of gas, and he gave her his last $20 to help her get home safely. It's a heartwarming story. Well, the woman was so blown away by this act of kindness, she started a webpage to share this story with the world. And what she wanted to do is help this guy get back on his feet, kind of a pay-it-forward This is a good guy. He lost his last $20 helping me. Okay, world, can we help this guy? She wanted to raise $10,000. She actually ended up raising $400,000 for this guy. Wow. That kind of makes you feel good. But then there's a little bit of a plot twist. See, the homeless guy didn't really get much of that money. And the woman and her husband mysteriously began living a much more luxurious lifestyle than they had before, there's a lawsuit. It's a whole mess. So where is this going? The reason I bring up this story with all of its twists and turns and its, wait, what? Because it's a perfect case study as we ask the question, is there anything beyond what we can see and hear and taste and smell? What do I mean? I mean, our gut instinct when we hear this story goes something like this. Homeless man gives everything he has to help stranded woman. Oh. She returns the favor and asks the world to help. Oh, the world hears the story and thousands of people give money to the cause. Now we're kind of tearing up a little bit. And then she pockets most of the donated money. Boo! But here's where things get really interesting. If we accept for a moment that there is no rule giver, that there's no God, then how are these responses really justifiable? the tearing up, the awe, the boo. On what basis are we delighted or appalled? Without a moral code, a bigger-than-us rule book that guides and shapes what actions are honorable and what actions are deplorable, we'd have the complete opposite reaction to this story. If the only directive was survive, then our reaction would look something like this. Homeless man gives everything he has to help stranded woman. What an idiot. 
He just blew his last chance to survive. Now she returns the favor and asks the world to help him. Well, she should have just taken the free money and moved on. Instead, she's wasting her time and energy helping a total stranger. The world hears the story and thousands of people donate to the cause. Are we all idiots? We won't benefit from this at all. Now we're all wasting our time and our money. In the last piece of the story, she pockets most of the donated money. And our response has to be, finally, someone with some sense. This is the only logical thing to do. And her odds of survival are so much better in her new Land Rover. So as we're starting to see, this is what real life would be like if it were described only by evolutionary instincts. And this is the main thrust behind this moral argument. This argument that if there are rules that we all agree on somewhere deep down, then there must be a rule giver. The world that we're describing without this rule giver is this upside down world that we know we don't actually live in. Sure, we see people act selfishly all the time, like in this story, but we know at the bottom of, the, of our hearts that they shouldn't. We see racism and we hate it. We see hypocrisy and it makes us furious. See, we live our lives and we respond to stories in the news like this one as if our actions are not arbitrary, that they matter, and that there are right ones and there are wrong ones. So it follows that our worldview should account for this as well. It has to have a metaphysical or beyond the physical, beyond the senses element of absolute rightness and wrongness, a rule giver. And one, one side note is we talk about morality and rules and a rule giver. One of the biggest problems that people have with Christianity is not so much the question of whether or not there are rules, but the fact that no one seems to be following them very well. And if this describes you, what I want to invite you to is to come back next week as Kyle is going to examine the problem of hypocrisy. For this week, I think it's enough to say this, back to our soccer metaphor, that no one ever claimed after watching three- and four-year-olds stumble, stumble around a soccer field that soccer doesn't exist. You're just witnessing people who barely know how to be people playing a sport they barely know how to play, doing their best to learn it, and they're really, really bad at it. The rules still exist. The game still exists. And more to the point, the fact that we can see how bad they are points to a built-in knowledge of a better way, a real way, a true way to play the game. So come back next week if, uh, if the problem of hypocrisy is one uh, that you want to hear about. So here we are. We've made these two arguments for God's existence based on what we see out in the universe, that there must be an architect, a designer, a beginner, and we, we, what we see in our own hearts, a rule giver. We're kind of collecting clues. We're saying, without a designer, you have to concede that the enormous amount of beauty and nuance that we see in the world around us is just a bunch of lucky breaks. Something incredible coming from nothing at all. And that takes faith to believe. Without a rule maker, you have to admit that the tragedies and atrocities that break our hearts are just arbitrary. Collisions of atoms no more offensive or unjust than any other choice or action. And that takes a lot of faith to believe that. Observing humanity shows overwhelming evidence that we live as if there are things that exist that we can't see. If we say it's all just rocks and cells and trees and water and atoms and stars, does that really account for the way things are in the world? Is it compatible with the kinds of conversations you have? the hopes you have, the fears you have, the dreams you have. 
If what we see is all there is, then our very existence is improbable. Our every action is aimless and our entire lives are ultimately pointless. Every worldview requires a combination of faith and reason, belief and logic, things outside of what can be measured and things that we can observe. I love this quote from Lee Strobel about what changed his mind about God's existence. He says, to continue in atheism, to continue believing that there is no God, I would need to believe that nothing produces everything. Non-life produces life. Randomness produces fine-tuning. Chaos produces information. Unconsciousness produces consciousness. And non-reason produces reason. I simply didn't have that much faith. I simply didn't have that much faith. Our undeniably organized universe points to a designer. Where did we come from? Our unavoidable notion of right and wrong behavior points to a rule maker. What should we be doing? And our unquenchable longing for meaning points to an author. Why do we exist? An author. And this is our last argument of the, of the morning. The argument from purpose. That there's a thread of a plot line that runs through all of life. To me, this is really the natural extension of both having a designer and having a rule maker. Because having a designer means that someone wanted me to exist. And having a rule maker that means that that someone cares about how I live my life. And these two things combined point to there being some sort of purpose, a plot, a meaning to our lives. Without an author, you have to acknowledge that there's no plot and nothing that we really do matters. Leo Tolstoy, who is the uh, famous writer of long books and famous grower of long beards, had this uh, realization, and it brought him to a place of belief in God uh, late in his life. This is what he says. The question brought me to the edge of abyss when I was 50 years old, and the question is this. What will come of what I do today and tomorrow? What will come of my entire life? Or expressed differently, why should I live Why should I wish for anything or do anything? Or to put it another way, is there any meaning in my life that will not be destroyed by my inevitably approaching death? Good old Leo. (laughs) He's a bit of a Debbie Downer here, but he's not wrong. (laughs) He goes on to say, my deeds, whatever they may be, will be forgotten sooner or later, and I myself will be no more. Why then do anything? His logic is, is entirely cogent. If indeed there is nothing other than this world, nothing outside of it, nothing beyond it, then nothing we do can have any significance. Again, this doesn't ring true in the human experience. Sir John Templeton says, Would it not be strange if a universe without purpose accidentally created humans who are so obsessed with purpose? And here's the thing. At the time of Christ, people, culture, the Greeks, the Romans, everyone was asking these same questions. Where did we come from? What should we do? Why do we exist? And into this moment, into this culture, into this conversation, this is how Jesus, uh, this is how John opens his account of the life of Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I really want to emphasize these first six words. In the beginning was the word. That word, word, with a capital W there, it's, it's capitalized in our translation. It has such a loaded meaning in the cultural landscape this letter was written for. So the word word here is originally the Greek word logos, which is where we get our English word logic. But it's more than logic. It's deeper. It's bigger than that. In that time, the, the logos, the Greek word logos, the logos of an, op- of an object was its purpose, its design, its plan. It's, it's reason for being. The Greeks knew that the logos of a vase was to pour water. And if you used it for something else, it wouldn't work right. They were in the midst of asking these big questions and exploring this idea that if things we create have a purpose, they have a logos, and they're only really truly whole or useful when they're doing that logos, when they're doing that thing, then maybe there's a logos behind everything. A logos for you and a logos for existence, a reason for existence. And into this conversation, John writes, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was this logos you've been looking for. In the beginning was the purpose. In the beginning was the design. In the beginning was the plan. In the beginning was the reason. In the beginning was the where did we come from? In the beginning was the what should we do? In the beginning was the why do we exist? And his name is Jesus. So you weren't created to merely accept or agree to some philosophical arguments and concepts. You were created to know and be known by your divine designer. There's so much more to the journey, but this is where it starts. This is how people come to believe. They decide that they don't have enough faith to believe that they came from nowhere. What they're doing is arbitrary, and in the end, there won't be anyone or anything to remember it anyway. So if you've been walking with Jesus for years, I want to remind and encourage you to never stop asking big questions with a humble and curious heart. Your God is unimaginable, immeasurable, unstoppable. And there's always more of his awesome heart to discover. If you don't believe or you aren't quite sure, you are in the right place. Get plugged into this community. Keep asking big questions. Keep gathering clues. And ask Jesus the logos, the purpose, the design, the plan, the reason to be real to you to reveal himself to you, to speak to you, because this is not an idea that we worship. This is a person. His name is Jesus. Will you stand and pray with me? God, we want to be a people that is asking the big questions and seeking after your heart with everything that we have. And we thank you that you have revealed yourself in Jesus. We thank you that you have made yourself known to us. 
We thank you that when we call and we ask with a curious and humble heart that you show up. I pray for those in this room, God, that don't know you or don't believe, that you would continue to work in them, to speak to them. And I pray for those of us in this room who have been walking with you for quite some time, that you would inspire us, inspire in us a new curiosity and a new tenacity to know you deeper, not to be content with uh, what we know of you today, but to wholeheartedly understand that there's always more of our incredible, great God. God, speak to us this morning as we continue to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.